0: Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you the DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier.
1: We are fortunate again today to be joined by Dale Humberg and Ken Babcock, our guests in our continuing episodes about the history of waterfowl harvest management. We are now on episode seven, and we're going to pick up with Dale and Ken where we left off last time. But uh, first, I guess, let me welcome Ken and Dale back in. Ken, Dale, welcome.
0: Great to be here, Mike. Thanks, Mike.
1: So on our last episode, we made it through the 1960s, basically. Uh, Somewhere around that time, we started talking about the point system. That's when we introduced that new type of regulatory alternative. And we're going to have uh, Dr. Jim Dubofsky on a subsequent episode to talk about that in even more detail. But for this episode, we're going to continue on into the 70s. And here eventually over the next couple of episodes, we'll get into, uh, I think with the the two of you, we're going to wrap up somewhere around the mid 90s, the introduction of adaptive harvest management. Uh, But yeah, on this episode, one of the first things that I guess we need to do, a couple of things. One is we, after the airing of our first two episodes, we got some feedback from at least one of our listeners saying, hey, you guys might need to clarify this particular aspect of, of, of something that was discussed. And so that's what we need to do first off. And and so, the, specifically, what we need to do is go back and clarify something with respect to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. I think in one of those first two episodes, we referenced how it was amended uh, to include uh, to include Mexico, Japan, and Russia. And I think maybe the way it came off is is if we we might have might have sounded as though. Mexico, Japan and Russia were part of were amended to become part of the original migratory bird treaty with Canada, but that's not exactly right. Uh, it was clarified to us and and we apologize for making it sound any different than it is, but the, the the United States subsequently entered into individual treaties with Mexico in 1936, Japan in 1972 and Russia in 1976. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act itself was and was amended to cover those separate treaties. But we wanted to clarify, need to clarify, that the United States has a series of bilateral treaties with each of four nations, Canada, Mexico, Japan, and Russia. And so there are other aspects of that that we could discuss, um, but we're going to forego some of those at this time. But we do appreciate the input that we got from our listeners. And, you know, the, the one thing that we probably should begin these episodes with is that there are undoubtedly will be a few things that we uh, we might we might not state in their in their full extent as we go through this. Uh, and so we appreciate opportunities to clarify those. And Ken, I think where we want to start off this one is to kind of step back a bit and to touch on something that first came about in the 1960s. And we can just talk about this in generalities, but it's something that continues with us today in a form of You know, a a harvest opportunity that we all, that most of us uh, here in the states have, and that is the early teal season. And I think it became experimental in the mid '60s. So, if you could uh, touch on what you recall about what led to the the desire for a a special teal season in in early fall, and kind of how that came about.
0: Uh, Sure, Mike. Uh, As we have discussed before, the early '60s. were was a period of time when there were fairly restrictive regulations all across the, uh, North America in terms of ducks, mostly related to the fact that populations were down in response to drought across the breeding areas and lower fall flights. And uh, the people that were responsible for managing ducks and duck harvest at that time were looking for additional opportunities. And the blue-winged teal, being a very early migrant, uh, moving through much of the United States, uh, even prior to the regular season dates that were established, seemed to offer an opportunity for that uh, that uh, that additional chance to to harvest birds without having any impact on populations. So that was the the primary thing that that drove that. It was established as an experiment, uh, and that experiment uh, went on for three years uh, 65 66 67 and then there was a time frame uh, that uh, the season was not offered so that the results of those uh, experimental years could be evaluated and then in the, in 1970 or the early 70s uh, uh, it was reinstituted and uh, has basically, been carried on and offered as an option to most states uh, since that time.
1: Thank you for that, Ken. I wanted to, we wanted to go back and just cover that in case any of our listeners are, you know, have ever wondered uh, when the, that teal season, early teal season first came about. There have been a number of changes to the the teal season regulations through the years, and we might touch on those as we go forward. But uh, but nevertheless, just wanted to at least put a marker, uh, so to speak, on when, the the teal seasons came about because that is certainly a part of our regulatory options or our harvest opportunities that we have today, and so they date back to the mid '60s. So, you know, now I, I we want to move into the '70s with this conversation. Ken, the you were you were uh, an active participant in the flyway system at this time. And Dale, remind me. I think I feel like I ask this every time, uh, but usually a couple of weeks go by between our conversations. When did you? Uh, when did you take a position uh, in the in the Flyway system?
2: Yeah, in the mid-70s, Mike, uh, I was officially on the uh, Mississippi Flyway technical section beginning 1977-78. Uh,
1: okay, and so Ken would have been an active uh, member of the technical committee at, at this time in the early 70s. And so, Ken, I'll direct this question to you. Is it fair to say that the, 19, that the 1960s and certainly as we get into the 1970s was an era of rapidly increasing interest, uh, into in trying to apply data uh, to our understanding of the harvest effects on waterfowl population dynamics is that am I kind of getting a, a feel like we've thought about the effects of harvest for quite some time as we've talked about, but were the late were the 60s and certainly into the 70s a time when we had we began to get enough data to sort of evaluate that analytically?
0: Yes, it was, and uh, you know up until that period, uh, the primary lever that we had at our disposal in terms of managing harvest uh, uh, based on what we knew at that time was through regulation by reducing or increasing bag limits, uh, reducing or increasing season length uh, as being the primary lever. And uh, during that period of time, there were different schools of thought about the impact of harvest. Uh, Some people felt that uh, harvest was the primary driver Other people felt that while harvest may have some impact, there may be other things at play, particularly uh, uh, habitat conditions that were more important. And so the people that were in technical responsibility positions during that time frame wanted to find answers to those questions. So setting up experiments, analyzing available data, uh, doing the things that needed to be done to answer those questions and how they impacted populations and impacted the uh, opportunities for hunting certainly became a, a very important aspect of, of, of waterfowl management during that period.
1: Dale, around the time that you came to the flyway system, I, th- I think I'm going to get this year right, but there was a fairly significant Uh, And I guess the the actual analytical work would have preceded that the year in which you came to the flyway system. But uh, there was a fairly significant report by a a couple of guys named Dave Anderson and Ken Burnham. And that, my reading is that was a pretty influential analysis and report that came out of that. Do you, can you share some of of that history? What was the significance of the analyses that Anderson and Burnham uh, undertook? Well,
2: Mike, the... uh the significance of that, um, era was that, uh, the work by Dave Anderson, and Ken Burnham really set the stage for actively exploring, uh, through advanced analytical techniques, uh, the whole idea of additive versus compensatory mortality, um, it put it in a form that biologists using the data at hand, uh, could actively test during years, uh, that followed, uh, Prior to that, as Ken pointed out, uh, we made an assumption that the the gun was the lever that we had, and uh, that a a bird taken out of the population uh, during the season was not going to be there next year to lay eggs. And and so, virtually all of our management was oriented toward this idea that uh, the shotgun was was the key element in waterfowl management. Um, What uh, Anderson and Burnham's uh, analytical work um, exposed was that uh, we've got a, a couple of different possible alternatives to consider, uh, additive or compensatory mortality, that uh, that perhaps there's some other things going on in the world of waterfowl from the time they leave the wintering grounds to the time they return the next fall that uh, have as much or more, perhaps, to do with the status of populations, uh, their growth or their decline. And so what it did was accept that... Um, we we still had work to do with regard to um, the period of the year when birds weren't harvested, uh, the relative impact of uh, various um, habitat conditions, uh, harvest pressure, uh, non-hunting mortality on drake birds versus hen birds. Um, that it may not be the same for either sex, and so there was a whole number of things that were introduced at that point in time that caused biologists to uh, begin a couple of things. One, being more explicit about what their beliefs were. And secondly, collecting the data to begin informing those beliefs.
1: So, Dale, do I remember correctly or do I understand correctly that sort of the, the key nature of the analysis or at least one aspect of the analysis by Anderson and Burnham was to look at look to see if there was a relationship between harvest rate and annual survival rate. And if if we had additive mortality occurring then as harvest rate increased, survival rate, annual survival rate would decrease. But if there was some compensation going on or if there was no effect of harvest on annual survival, then as harvest rate increased, you would, uh, you would either see no change in annual survival rate or maybe you would see no change up to some point of harvest rate at which time annual survival rate declines. Was there any definitive outcome from that analysis You know, that that Lynn did more support to one idea versus the other.
2: I think the key there, Mike, was that it it caused enough question marks among people who were pretty certain of additive mortality prior to that point that began to scratch their heads a little bit and ask about, well, uh, what would be the processes by which um, uh, mortality could, could be compensated for or the degree to which additivity occurred? And, uh, you know, what, what are the mechanisms that drive it? So I think most important was uh, by the mid to late 1970s, people were asking med- better and more explicit questions about the process itself um, and uh, how that related to harvest management.
1: The analyses that you mentioned there, Dale, and some of the thinking that was was going on in some of the discussions and debates led to something, I believe, in the late 70s that was known as the Stabilized Regulations Experiment. Would that be the next appropriate place to go in this conversation with regard to the evolution of our understanding and how we were trying to improve that?
2: Well, that makes sense, Mike. Um, you know, if we think back to the 1970s, even though we were gaining some... Um, additional information, some additional uh, and emerging analytical techniques, there was still a tendency year in and year out to change seasons by five days here and there, uh, a bag limit by one or two birds. Um, and so we were still, um, in quotes, tinkering with regulations uh, with the belief uh, that those minor changes year in and year out were having an effect on harvest. Um And so what it brought about uh, was by late 1970s, uh, Canada and then the following year, the U.S. joined in a process called the Stabilized Regulations Experiment. And what that uh, did was, uh, you know, for a period of uh, five, six years uh, was maintained regulations constant so that you weren't constantly chasing populations with regulations on an annual basis and gave you a chance to, over this period of years, learn something when you were not changing regulations on an annual basis
1: and and so give us a bit more on the stabilized regulations experiment were they were they stabilized i guess they would have to be specific to each flyway and how much work went into figuring out what they at what level they would be stabilized and are we talking about only mallards or was this across all species where we saw some stabilization
2: Yeah, it was across species. Now, recall Canada uh, stabilized, uh, started the experiment in 1979. The U.S. followed suit in 1980. After the 1970s, when people were, uh, for the most part, uh, pretty satisfied with the seasons that were in place, um, it made sense to then stabilize seasons at 1979 levels. Um, uh, There were no changes, uh, for the most part, across species. Um, The flyway differences were retained during that period of time, uh, those five-year periods. And a whole lot of emphasis then was shifted towards um, efforts on the breeding grounds. um, uh, An incredible level of banding uh, occurred, not only in the summer, but also during the the fall and winter. And so it gave us an opportunity, after banding some 35,000 mallards, for example, in spring and summer, and some 30,000 banded in fall and winter, along with uh, radio-equipped uh, birds as well, to look at uh, specific aspects of winter behavior and with just any number of things that that opportunity introduced. Um, and uh, we learned in a in a five-year period uh, some pretty solid uh, biological detail as well as aspects related to harvest management.
1: Did we come out of the stabilized regulations experiment with Having solved all the problems, <laughs> I know the answer to that is no. But what were the key advancements? And we don't have to go through all of them, but just give us some examples of what what we learned. You know, we do an experiment like this. We invest some time and thought into it and collect a lot of data. Uh, and, and I know that we did not arrive at, at all of the answers, but what were some of the most significant findings to come from that?
2: Well, and um, even though you were... Uh, uh, tongue-in-cheek commenting on, did we learn everything? Uh, Of course, the answer is no. Um, What it did was better define some of the key questions that we had. Um, Some of the more interesting aspects uh, related to the the nature of uh, interval survival. Um, Because we were banning at different times of the year, both males and females, we began to gain insights in the degree to which um, those mortality rates the timing of that mortality differed between males and females. Learned that, for example, uh, the majority of the um, uh, the mortality among female mallards, for example, occurred during the breeding season. Uh, you know, they're the ones that uh, you know after the male inseminates the female, uh, sits on the territory for a couple of weeks, and then boogies off. Really has no responsibility, and for large part, no exposure to predators. The female, on the other hand, uh, is is exposed constantly during that entire um, four-week nesting period as well as the brood-rearing period. And so a whole lot of the mortality of hens occurs during that time of the year. Um, A lot of it pointed to a relatively low rate of post-season mortality. And so uh, it really helped biologists understand that we need to be thinking about these processes differently between uh, the two uh, sexes uh, of of mallards in this in this example. Uh, Ken may have some other insights in that regard, but I think a lot of it was related to our ability to understand based on banding at different times of the year when those mortality processes were occurring, and at least by implication, uh, how and why they were occurring. There was some really good work done during the winter that looked at how birds uh, were distributed depending on different habitat conditions, uh, hunting pressure, and the like. And so, we we gained insights into the non-breeding part of the year that perhaps we hadn't paid much attention to prior to um, the early 1980s.
0: Yeah, I would I would just add to that that uh, uh, since the regulations, the season links and bag limits uh, were unchanged during this stabilized period, it gave us an opportunity to look at other factors that we knew had an impact on populations, uh, uh, the most important of which we thought was habitat conditions, and be able to start to relate changes in habitat uh, from year to year to changes in populations. It gave us a chance to uh, to either confirm or disprove some of the theories that uh, Conditions on the breeding ground determined uh, what the productive rate was that year, uh, and, and it gave us an opportunity to look at things other than just the shotgun uh, in relationship to its effect on on uh, on on duck populations. And Dale pointing out the fact that uh, the difference amongst between sexes of mallards. Uh, with most of the mortality occurring outside the hunting season for hens, was a very significant aspect of uh, regulations that followed. And we'll talk about the point system a little later on. And part of that uh, uh, relates to different uh, points for for hens versus mallard uh, versus drakes and the mallards.
2: Another key point, Mike, I think is is that it was during this period of time because we were looking cross seasonal. That we really began to ask questions about well, what's going on during the non breeding part of the world. It was right after that that we had a, a symposium called Waterfowl in Winter. And so we began to ask questions about um, the entire annual cycle of birds that perhaps uh, we didn't, didn't uh, pay as much attention to prior to that uh, experiment during the early 80s.
1: So, at the end of this stabilized regulations experiment, where did we go with regard to uh, with regard to harvest regulations, Dale? You know, with the stabilized regulations experiment was in the early '80s, and then we came out of that. Uh, and so, I guess to frame up this, the, your answer uh, to my question about where did we go with regulations after that opportunity to learn, uh, what were our waterfowl populations doing at that time, and then. Yeah, where did we go from that point forward with regulation? Because it certainly didn't solve all the answer all the questions. There were still debates about compensatory versus additive mortality and what the harvest rate should be. But I think there were some key changes to come out of that. So, what, kind of set that up. Start with what were our populations doing, and then where did we go with regulations?
2: Well, Mike, if um, if we recall any recent history with regard to declines in populations, uh, deterioration of habitat and so on. It was certainly the, the beginning in the relatively uh, early 1980s but certainly into 85 through 88 and continu- continuing into the early 90s. Um, the most recent period of pretty severe drought, habitat condition decline, population decline. And the fact that we just came out of stabilized regulations I believe changed the mindset going forward about how frequently we were going to revisit regulations. And so during the period of 1985, 86, 87, we had consistent regulations for that three year period. Similarly, 1988, 89, 90, and through 1993, we had relatively consistent regulations. The whole idea that stabilized regulations give us an opportunity to learn about the impact of regulations on uh, populations and so on uh, showed up in the supplemental environmental impact statement in 1988 as a primary theme. And so if nothing else, stab regs and the seasons that followed and the drought and decline populations that followed set the stage for a different way of thinking about waterfall harvest management through regulations.
1: Ken, were, at at what time, during what year did you go to the council, of the Mississippi Flyway Council? Did you transition away from the technical section and go to the, the council?
0: Well, it was not until the uh, uh, mid to late 80s that I actually came back in. I, I was, I continued to attend flyway meetings, uh, but uh, I was not uh, actually uh, of the council representative until the, the late 80s through through the, through the late 90s. So that was the period of time. But one of the things that I think is important to point out that, uh, you know, having gone decades of convincing people that uh, the shotgun was, uh, it was important to, when populations were down, to restrict regulations. During the stabilized regulations periods that Dale referred to, the population, fluctuated just like it always had in dry years uh, populations generally were down and there were individuals there were organizations that took strong exception of maintaining what they considered to be fairly liberal regulations uh, during a time when the when the when the habitat had, de- had had deteriorated somewhat and duck populations had declined so we had created a, a mindset among some people that uh, when duck populations went down, uh, when the prairies were dry, we had to restrict. And so it was, uh, and there were lawsuits filed, there were hearings held, there were a lot of things that went on that uh, uh, was, was a product of having, uh, having set that mindset uh, among people interested in waterfowl over several decades.
1: Ken, there were a couple of other things that happened in the late 80s. Dale has already referenced one of these, a supplemental environmental impact statement uh, and Another we have not yet spoken about is a special session at the North American Wildlife Natural Resources Conference. I don't know if that was eighty-eight or eighty-nine, but one of those two years. And I know you uh, you were involved in in that. Probably had a role in in both of those, in some aspect of both of those. So, what is an SEIS? What was the significance of the of the one that occurred in eighty-eight, and then also the its relationship to the special session at the North American Conference?
0: Well, the uh, supplemental. Uh- environmental impact statement that uh, was developed in in 87 and 88 basically laid out a new way of thinking about establishing waterfowl regulations. It took the data from the stabilized regulations period. It took the data from uh, decades of of harvest and changes in regulations. And it basically said that uh, uh, we're going to be looking at things other than just harvest to determine status of 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 waterfowl populations and it was that supplemental environmental impact statement that led to the special session that was established uh, by the wildlife management institute as a part of the 1989 north american wildlife conference and the that conference uh, which i had the privilege of, of co-chairing with uh, uh dr rollin sparrow who at that time was the Uh, chief of the Office of Migratory Bird Management, we tried to pull together people who had the expertise in all aspects of what we understood about uh, impacts on populations of waterfowl. And I think that session started the discussion among folks that uh, the Supplemental Environmental Impact Statement has challenged us to take a new look at how we regulate harvest of, of waterfowl, primarily ducks and in North America, and specifically in the United States, in this regard, and uh, challenged us to bring those people together to say,
1: "How are we going to respond to this uh, this this call for a different way of, of doing business?" Dale, do you recall? Um, you were probably a participant in that in the uh, special session at the North American. Do you recall some of the significant conversations from that uh, from that session?
2: Yeah, Mike, I think notably, and it actually was uh, Ken's presentation uh, that uh, kind of prompted people to take a step back. Um, uh, The the primary message there was was expectations and reality, because a whole lot of what had occurred the decade or decade and a half prior to that uh, was for people to maybe stop short, beginning with the Anderson and Burnham analyses and other things, to revisit their expectations. And then at the same time, to address the reality going forward of how we were going to manage waterfowl populations and their harvests. And so uh, it was a, it was a turning point, I believe driven by certainly uh, some of the analytical advances, uh, the stabilized regulations experiment. And then in the eighties, the uh, declines in populations and the nature of of the the management response to it, those things in combination over about a 15 year period resulted in uh, uh, pretty close to a sea change in how we saw harvest management going forward.
1: Speaking of sea change, Dale and Ken, we, we can't get out of the 1980s without talking about one of the other most significant developments of that of that decade, and that being the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. I'm going to get, uh, get you guys to talk about that. Uh, but the, we this is, as you guys have both mentioned and as I've gleaned from some of my reading both before both during my training as well as leading up to this even during the 1960s and and 70s people were well you guys being being two of many that were part of these discussions began to really look to the habitat side of the equation and say we need to we need to start thinking about it I actually there's a document um, that I've come across here recently. I think it was in yeah, it was the Mississippi Flyway and the title of it is lessons from the 60s and Challenges of the 70s in the Mississippi Flyway. And uh, each of you guys probably had some, well, Dale, I don't know if you've would have had a role in that, Ken, you probably would have. but uh, I specifically note, there were some pieces in that in that particular publication where it spoke directly about the need to focus on habitat conservation, habitat management not just on the breeding grounds. It was certainly recognized that that's where the ducks are produced. But even back in the 60s, you were explicitly beginning to identify the need to conserve habitats and maybe may have even had some habitat goals uh, in some form or another for migration areas, staging areas, and, and the wintering areas. Uh, again, I kind of heard you chuckle whenever I mentioned the, the name of that publication. Does that bring back memories for you?
0: It, it certainly does. And it, again, it, it, did, uh, it did start to direct uh, consideration to the, to the habitat conditions. And one of the things that helped to bring this about that often goes unmentioned is that uh, the pilot biologist that flew the waterfowl surveys in Canada and, and the prairies of the United States attended a lot of the tech section meetings during that period of time. And I think they brought the importance of, of habitat, changes in habitat on the on the, the breeding areas uh, to the attention. And then those of us who were on migration areas or in wintering areas that led to uh, discussions about habitat uh, in wintering areas, I think, uh, was generated during that period of time. And that what we learned for us is that in the 60s, we spent almost all of our time trying to figure out how to how to change Season length and change bag limits to impact populations and started to direct uh, our attention to not just that, but uh, what can we do about the habitat situation? Up until that point in time, I think everybody thought, well, they're going to drain all the marshes, they're going to channelize all the rivers. Uh, There's not anything we can do about it. It's bigger than the conservation community. But fortunately, there were leaders in the movement at that time that said, no, it's too important to ignore.
1: Dale, I know you were a critical figure in in the the discussions and development of the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. I want to hear, I want your perspective on the thinking that led to the development of that plan. We're, we're kind of, it doesn't have, you know, harvest management doesn't have a, a tremendously strong footprint or presence in the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. It's certainly acknowledged as a critical part of our overall efforts to conserve waterfowl populations. but uh, And we're going to get back to some of the harvest discussions here in a minute, but I didn't want to go too far b- without touching on the, this significant event of the 1980s. But Dale, your perspective on the events leading up to the North American waterfowl management plan, whether it be any kind of precursor documents or attempts and you know the discussions, whether they were, uh, I'm sure some people were doubted whether we could be effective with this, but I'd like to get your thoughts on that.
2: I think it's important to note that from the time that uh, that uh, Frederick Lincoln uh, identified flyways and people began to think about this as uh, an international migratory bird resource with an incredibly broad range of responsibilities, uh, state, federal, flyway. It was something that uh, emerged uh, 70 years ago as uh, a theme that's carried forward to today, certainly uh, in the late 40s and early 50s even, there were uh, significant efforts uh, to develop management plans. In some instances, they were just uh, species plans. For example, black ducks in uh, the Northeast Atlantic Flyway Um, emerging from that then were uh, things like uh, uh, lessons from the 60s, challenges for the 70s. And that, in many respects, was a management document, a management planning document uh, that carried into the early 80s uh, to the late um, uh, late 1970s, early 1980s. There was a, a national waterfall management plan on the U.S. side. But in each instance, uh, people began to ask questions about, now, isn't this broader than just our state, just broader than our flyway, just broader than the U.S.? And that's what gradually led to um, the, the really landmark document, the North American Waterfall Management Plan, that laid out uh, habitat objectives, laid out objectives that at least, maybe not explicit objectives, but at least acknowledged that people were in an part, important part of this equation as well. Um, it certainly alluded to the role of harvest management. And in fact, it was the, uh, the North American Waterfowl Population Goals from the 1970s Uh, that were the initial basis for a lot of the work on adaptive harvest management uh, that emerged uh, during the early 1990s.
0: Uh, Mike, I'd I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, another factor related to the North American waterfowl plan. As is the case in any major issue related to conservation, there's usually key individuals that are involved. And uh, I don't know who in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service made the decision to bring two individuals from the Flyway Council system uh, into play in terms of drafting that uh, North American plan. But these two people uh, were folks that had served both in the technical section, uh, they had served on the councils of their respective flyways, and ultimately became uh, uh, the chief administrator or assistant directors of their respective uh, conservation agencies. One of those individuals was uh, uh, Dick Yancey from the state of Louisiana. Uh, Dick Yancey had been one of the people who had said for years that uh, maybe we're putting too much emphasis on uh, on on harvest uh, in terms of uh, uh, status of, of duck populations. The other individual was uh, Jack Grebe, who became the director of... Uh, Colorado, and Jack Greeb was an innovator. He was the one that was involved in the early stages of experimentation with the with the point system. But these two individuals brought to the table a tremendous amount of respect from people, not just in their flyways, but in the other flyways across the country. And putting those two people in the position of being the primary authors, of the North American waterfowl management plan made this thing uh, work. And if I had to pick one thing in my career, uh, the development of that North American plan and the commitment to update it periodically, as we continued to learn, is probably the most important thing that uh, uh, we have to lean on in terms of managing waterfowl, even still today. And again, uh, Dick Yancey and Jack Grebe were the were the key players in that.
1: Dale, anything to add to that?
2: I think what was notable, Mike, uh, I remember some of the meetings that we had during the early to mid 80s uh, that uh, really hit me was that um, the broad participation, in addition to those um, you know, notable individuals, was um, the participation by others, whether they be uh, from the flyway that you were in, whether they were from Canada. I um, uh, uh, recall in uh, 1985, the session that we had that uh, we spent a full day on introducing the North American plan, where it was headed and so on and so forth. It was uh, uh, hosted or at least led by Jim Patterson from Canada. So here we are in the Mississippi Flyway with uh, this guy from Canada coming down really um, clarifying and emphasizing the fact that these are migratory bird resources that that is going to require a commitment and a responsibility, uh, in a much broader way than we might have considered in a flyway management plan, in a national waterfowl management plan, this was, in fact, a, a, a migratory bird resource that required uh, participation across all sectors.
1: and now the North American Waterfowl management plan is primarily a habitat plan. But do you recall any of the you know specific reference to how the plan acknowledged the role of of harvest? I kind of mentioned mentioned it at the at the outset here on the Nawamp conversation. but, Do you recall specifically what that uh, how harvest might have been referenced in that plan?
0: I I might offer a thought on that. Mike is uh, this plan was primarily focused on establishing population goals for for waterfowl, and it really didn't get into the issue of how you're going to regulate harvest. It left that to the flyways, which I think was appropriate at the time to do that. If it had started to try to direct how harvest was going to be handled uh you would have seen resistance from from states from flyway councils from other organizations uh so uh i, I think the fact that it was one that said we want to have these goals in terms of populations and we'll let the people that direct the harvest responsibilities take care of that and uh if we maintain these population goals the providing opportunities for people to enjoy these, whether they hunt or not, will be met.
2: Yeah, I think, Mike, uh, it, it is important to acknowledge that, that duck harvest management was part of the North American plan. Uh, like Ken said, uh, sure. right on target, is that it was a habitat plan, first and foremost, a habitat plan. But it also acknowledged that, uh, in fact, uh, if you look at uh, the early document, it basically says recreational duck harvest should be managed through the use of stabilized regulations. And so there was some important thematic elements already established in that, that if the breeding population index of mallards in the surveyed area of Canada, and the U.S. falls below 6.5 million. Um, they, so they were already thinking about um, um, uh, 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 changes in harvest management based on these broad aspects, um, not on year-to-year details of five days here or a bird in the bag there, but establishing these overall Concepts that would go forward um, uh, in uh, in harvest management. So it was more than an appendix, but it wasn't front and center necessarily in that early document.
0: And, and I, if I could, I'd add one more one more issue. Uh, uh, and I've, I think I've said this before, but my my good friend out of the Ducks Unlimited Southern Regional Office, uh, Jerry Holden, uh, used to always say, uh, "The answer is money. What's your question?" And yeah. We, we found ourselves, after the North American plan was approved, we said, okay, we got this great plan, but we don't have any money. Uh, we don't have any way to implement it. And uh, there were people uh, uh, like uh, Dr. Gary Meyer out of the state of Tennessee that stepped up through the International Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies and said, we're going to find a way to get this funded. And uh, uh, this plan was, uh, was approved by the respective nations in 1986. And by 1989, which is a pretty short period of time in the political arena, the North American Wetland Conservation Act had been, had been approved. And the funding that uh, came along with that, uh, was also, uh, directed towards, uh, funding the implementation of the North American Waterfowl Management Plan.
1: Guys, this is probably a, a an opportune time to wrap up this particular episode. We've covered a lot of ground here. We've moved pretty quickly through the '70s into the uh, into the '80s. I think this may be the first episode yet where we've actually covered two decades. <laughs> but uh, but uh, maybe maybe folks will be uh, will be reassured to know that there's still some material from the 1970s specific to harvest regulations that we need to cover. So we're going to do that on the next episode. We are going to go back a bit in time here uh, a bit. A bit different from the way we've done some of the previous episodes, but it felt uh, felt appropriate to move on into the 80s and then talk about the North American plan uh, because that was that era of the of the 80s was quite significant in some uh, some some advancements in the way we're thinking about multiple aspects of the waterfowl conservation enterprise and of course what comes after the 80s is the 90s and that will lead us pretty quickly to a discussion about the emergence of adaptive harvest management in 19. 19- So we have a couple more things to discuss on a subsequent episode here with Ken and Dale, and we hope you all join us again for that episode. So Ken, Dale, thank you guys for joining us.
2: Thank you. Bet Mike.
1: A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Ken Babcock and Dale Humberg for their continued contribution to this series on harvest management, the history of waterfowl harvest management, and we look forward to having them back on at least one more episode. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work he does on these podcasts. This would not be possible without him. And of course, you, the listener, it wouldn't be possible without you as well. We thank you for your time and support of the podcast, and we thank you most importantly for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.